out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed we are. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Bristol-based band, The Sears, who I caught up with their lead singer very recently, Steve Spider Croom, to find out more about life, love, poetry and everything else in between. Anyway, look, this is the interview. And uh, after several minutes, quite a few minutes of casual chat, which has been edited out, we got down to that very exciting subject that we were talking about, the 80s. I know, we love the 80s. And um, the music, the amount of uh, different musical genres that were happening at the time. And uh, then Steve just came in with this, this conversation. And that's it. That's going to be the beginning. From then on, just... Fill your boots, it's fascinating. Make notes, I will test you at the end just to make sure you're paying attention. Anyway, Steve, tell us more about the 80s now. But I, I've, I was lucky in the fact that my mind, I sort of went between several genres working with bands and being in the Sears. Um, did a lot of stuff with Mega City 4 as well. Um, put on gigs and was part of something crusty punk side of things i used to be part of um fanzine called um skate mutants from the fifth dimension and then after that came bugs and drugs um we did the seer stuff uh, out of the back of that lived in squats for for quite a lot of that um and also also did before all that did a lot of sound engineering for Flatmates and the Rose Hips, all sort of quite twee. Yes, indie, indie pop. Martin Whitehead from Subway. Subway fame. So yeah, it did, old mates, him and him and Rocker, the two of the the original members of the Flatmates. Yes, um, I could be in did heaven. A lot, did yeah, did a lot of that doing their sound. That's where I learned to do my sound engineering. It was I can remember we played. Um, bank called the oh god I can't remember what the, I think they were is they weren't very they weren't very well known poppy heads mm. in in Cambridge and flatmates um, headlined and the poppy heads had a hand in putting it on and it was some it was something to do with one of the smaller university um buildings in in cambridge but uh, the bloke just delivered a pa and then just went there you go <laughs> and nobody knew it was like nobody knew and it was like well, what do we do and i said right let's let's try and set everything up then <laughs> so from what i'd seen of other gigs it was like right well, i'd managed to put it together um and that enough about me to say right let's let's plug things in and 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 away we go and i managed to set the whole pa up and do both bands sound that night and martin just went yeah just just keep roadying but do our sound if you want I was like, yeah yeah oh that's happy cool to, happy to do that nice apprenticeship so what was your yeah. kind of early kind of formative years you know when when did you suddenly have that moment like a lot of us you know, where you're watching Top of the Pops and then something appears and you think, my God, that's incredible. I'm I'm going to go and try and buy the seven-inch single of that. Um, really early. Um, really, before 
before um, Punk even, I was a massive Slade fan. Yes. Uh, well, and I guess uh, I guess it was around Mama We're All Crazy Now, 73, 74, when I was about eight, nine, something around that sort of time. And I kept my ear out for anything with a guitar in it after that, whether it was... And then I just chanced upon a news item, obviously, after the Sex Pistols, and saw the Ramones. And that was, my God... And so it really interested me a lot, Sex Pistols and The Damned and The Clash and The Ramones around that sort of time. And my first single that I bought was Rockaway Beach. Classic. That is so good. Well, I was born in 64, so the early 70s, you know, that was I suppose that was the formative years that I started getting obsessed. And so it was kind of, you know, Sweet and Slade and obviously Gary Glitter. But thankfully, David Bowie was my first single and my first love. And yeah. that was that was quite a relief, really, because it could have been it could have been Gary. I'll have to say we loved him at the time, didn't we? We did. And I, I, I managed I managed to get all of um, Slade's back catalogue over the years, but I didn't buy anything until 78 when my pocket money was able to save up and, and much to my my parents dismay as well i i got quite adept at going into Woolworths and shoplifting singles as well so. yes well, well i do believe Woolworths, <laughs> do. The, the bargain area which was sort of where they were sort of given not given them away obviously but you know for 10p it was one of those things that i think you know it was like a rite of passage wasn't it Woolworths, the singles that were being reduced yeah you're basically doing them a favor weren't you <laughs> Remember. Oh God, yeah, just 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 helping them with their stock control. I know so. they were going to throw them. They would have gone in landfill they, anyway. They, they were just just some of the God. What did I? I can remember. Remember on my fifteenth birthday, shoplifting tomorrow's girls on blue vinyl by the UK subs. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Terrible, terrible influence. I'm sure your listeners don't want to. Well, they, of a certain age, I think everyone will go, oh, God, yeah, I forgot we used to do the, the Woolworths singles. You know, that was our thing, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they were they were saviours. <laughs> yeah, You couldn't get them anywhere else. And there's other weird little places where I grew up down, I grew up in a, a council estate called Southmead and just down the road, as with a lot of areas, uh, cities, I suppose, there's normally a, a a quite nice area attached to a not so nice area, like almost straight away. And our nice area was a place called Westbury on Trim, Westbury Village. It used to be a village, but got swallowed up when Southmead came along. And we used to get some of your singles from the Hoover Repairs Shop, right in Westbury as well. They had they had like a they had like a couple of racks of seven inch singles and some LPs and things. So you'd have a quick flick through through there. Yeah. So yeah, some weird places that were that were around in the uh, in the late seventies and early eighties. So, yeah. I seem to remember the local town. You know, there wasn't a record shop, but there was a place that did sort of you know, like you said, Hoover's fridges, you know, toasters, irons, and and some record some records randomly by the counter. And I think that's where I bought my David Bowie seven inch of Space Oddity. You know, so um... great. I don't. Picked up. This is how full circle we come with with all the specialist record shops. I picked up Changes One Bowie and Changes Two Bowie at my local Sainsbury's. Nice. <laughs> it's yeah. So it, it's it's weird 
what you find and where you find things. I, I for you can't get them anymore, but um, I had a good few years where I just picked up some incredible stuff from charity shops. But everybody's wise to that now. They either have shopped it all out, or the people pricing it up know what or think they know what they're they're doing. And uh, yeah, well, I I can remember and then. And then put ludicrous prices on it and it's it doesn't become a bargain does it if 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 people oh well that's 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 i've i've looked up on discogs and that's worth 70 quid on discogs so we're going to put it for 50 and it's like actually that bloke on discogs who's put that and he's a chancer and he's not going to get 70 quid for that so yeah you go away that just means i'll just walk past it it's fine Yes, absolutely, and um, yes, I mean that's that's it. Because I I can remember when people were selling their record, you know, the vinyl records in the probably the eighties and early nineties, and they were just like wanting people to just pick them up and take them away. You know, it was like you would do someone a favour because it was like they got there's no monetary value. And I, I think my brother did that, and I, I'm sure he still to this day regrets it because. You know, it was like, okay, we'll, we'll, you know, that kind of mindset where you think I've got to move on, get rid of the vinyl records. You know, if someone just picks them up, you know, and gives us a couple of quid, we'll be happy. And you're thinking, God, that was a lot of good, you know, expensive gear in there. But CDs was the future, wasn't it? Yeah, I don't actually own any CDs. So the only CDs I own, um, and I'm happy to mail you a, a, a copy of each of them. The first two, I was in a band afterwards called Zoomer after the Sears in like sort of late nineties and early two thousands. So that we we put out a couple of albums back then. I'm quite, quite happy to mail you a copy of each. Oh, nice. So look, then as the eighties progressed, and obviously you were getting to that age where we were all getting much more excited because because you had that sort of punk period then post-punk and then the 80s came along and there was a sort of I suppose at that time and I suppose a lot of the bands I've interviewed they had that unemployment period or job seekers allowance where they they were on the dole for a year basically but they could sort of sign on but do whatever they wanted and there was a lot of indie bands that started during that period and then you had you know the Julian Cope and U2 and Simple Minds and then the Smiths appeared so the 80s started to sort of yeah bands started to appear in incredible numbers at this stage we did but i was i came up through a different way i was a punk rocker so i came up through that side of things it was the original wave of bands and then the second wave of bands started coming through with a bit more aggressive punk rock um and i came up through things like discharge um gbh infra riot um cron gen antipasty right and what about they sort of and then moved more into american hardcore after that that that's which is still a big love for me now um so i just got more and more extreme juxtaposed with my love of of sort of garage music and i liked a lot of the c84 bands and ended up working with a couple of them i've, I've done sound for from most of them there's a club in bristol called the tropic club right that the the, the the take your the, the subway was was a club night I, I used to put bands on before it became a record label and martin and rocket started the flatmates um and i used to dj down there for for subway nights and we ended up putting on more punk rock bands on down there for some something we called the Kronstadt Club and the Skate Muties. 
um, promoted a lot of a lot of hardcore gigs, and I did the other side with Subway with with the indie stuff. So I've I've done a lot of a lot of bands sounds around that side, the clouds, um, bubblegum splash, pop will eat itself when they when they wielded a guitar. Yes. Um, the Charlottes, the Chesterfields, the Sainsburys, um, Teenage Fan Club. Pimey, you have the, done the MX Bandits, the Wolfhounds. Did, did, yeah, did either DJ gigs or or did their sound down there? So it was yeah, it was a good apprenticeship. Well, it was very good. Yeah, so you were very much part of that sort of Bristol scene. Um, I was of the scene, but not in it. I, I did what I had to do. I was there for for more of um, for more of a, a social bent, if you see what I mean. I I, I didn't hang out with none, not many of the, the people I hung, hung out with were in bands. Um, I worked for Martin and Rocker doing the the subway stuff but i did i didn't i would class them as friends to this day but i didn't hang out with them yes at all it was always at gigs um all my other mates i could i I suppose the other my friends that were in a band would have been chaos uk um chaos and gabba and mower and they at various times lived with them all um squatting and, and things like that with with the skate mutist boys but um i think bear was in a band called lunatic fringe and bear um and his brother bino were the main people at um skate mutist fanzine um and we lived in a squat with them for years um so they were my mates rather than mates in bands yes so yeah sort of hang out with 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 other people that weren't in bands rather than bands we used to go to a load of gigs together and 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 do that rather than be part of any scene as such yes so were you ever were you ever kind of thinking actually one day i'm going to be on the stage or were you just quite happy to be where you were um i i always wanted to be in a band and i the first band i was in i, I was 15 um and i started as a drummer for a for a, a local band we grew up uh, in a place called fish ponds at that time um and and that would punks would probably know fish ponds as the the home of a band called vice squad did a, a great single called last rockers and i think a version of them still going today with with becky the original singer um but i Grew up around that sort of environment, and a couple a couple of kiddies that were part of that fish pond punk scene. I started was in a band with them. We called Mass Murder. We did one gig and promptly broke up. <laughs> played played the face and Furkin and and broke up. And then I I decided to buy a bass guitar and an amplifier and and got a community program at Temple Mead's old station, renovating that and met. A guy called Jason Collins, who was also a bass player, um, and we got on really well. He said, oh, my band's 
my band's practicing. Um, we we do Saturday morning nine till one, and I said, well, that's that actually. <laughs> what same band practices on a Saturday morning? Right. Yes. But he said, well, we'll 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 go for a drink. We went to a pub called the Old England, and he said, come back, we can crash on my sofa and then we can go along if you'd like to sit in on practice see what we're like and I was like yeah yeah that'd be really interesting I'd be really happy to do just to, to listen to some music and even at nine in the morning that's brilliant so we, we we went called in on the guitarist Lee um basically he wouldn't wake up and how you got into Lee's place was on the ground floor. His front room window was always on the latch. So you just open the window and climb in through the window and then go and wake him up, make yourself a cup of tea while he woke up. And then we went on, on to practice. Yes. It was a bit of time setting up cause Lee would be there and we, we'd help set up, um, drummers drums because the drummer wasn't there yet. There was, um, no singer, for whatever reason, he didn't even bother showing up that week. Drummer walked in late, and I'd heard tale of this fearsome character, age, death from above. Um, and and he walks in. He could have walked straight out of Hawkwind, and he walked in, and he just walked in with a with his wielded his bike, and he just went, "Lovely day. I um, I forgot my symbols. I'll just pop home." <laughs> See you in about ten. So came back and I was like, oh, "What's going on?" So they just thought, "Well, singer Dean at the time he's just he's not there, so they'll they'll just jam because they're they're of that ilk. They were all uh, more hippies than anything else. Uh, shared a love of shared a love of garage punk. Right. And that was the that was the common bond. Lee was a big T Rex fan. Jason. Um, liked a wide range of stuff he's r really folky these days um and adrian was the old drummer in lunatic fringe who decided he didn't want to play punk anymore um wanted to do something different so i just listened to them jam and they just tuned up just a little little quick noodle and then it's all right we'll play milk cow blues um which is an old elvis song but their their version was taken from a, a Swedish band called the Nomads and literally just the four came in on the sticks and they were tight as a duck's ass and it was just like bang I could not believe it Jason stood in on vocals and they knocked out this brilliant version of Milk Cow Blues um, and then proceeded to play all the other stuff that they had and I I was asked to improvise. Not only just yeah, to spare mic there, why don't you improvise? The old hippies in them coming out. Mm. I literally made animal noises for half an hour. And they liked the energy. So basically, they asked me to come down the next week. And the singer turned up and we tried to work something with, with two singers. Yes. Um, which wasn't very successful. Um, Dean was much more of a pub singer anyway um, but I immediately started contributing riffs and songs and ideas and there was there was a it came to a head when Dean got arrested for stabbing somebody 
in self-defense, I might add. Right. But they just sort of, while he was on remand, it was decided that I would take over. Um, the feeling was much better without him. And we go forwards with just as a four piece. Um, and at the time they were called Rip Van Satan and the Earth Rats. And I said, if I'm going to be part of this band going forward, <laughs> we this has to stop. We need a proper name. So we just, I went away and made a list of about 200 names and we all looked through and we settled on the Sears quite quickly because Lee was a big Seeds fan. Um, Adrian knew a band called the Sears, the S-E-A-R-S, sort of an anarcho-punk sort of band and he, we, everybody thought that was good. And then I went and designed a, a rudimentary logo, which Jason then sort of made good because Jason is a very talented comic book artist. Um, and and we went from there, and it all sort of snowballed really quickly. We yes. had a couple of we 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 tried a couple of other other people on guitar because we thought we wouldn't um, we, we would be better with a second guitarist. Um, and then they came and went, and I did a few gigs on guitar, but I can't really play guitar. So that didn't last very long, and it hampered my stage stuff because I'm quite energetic on stage normally around that time when I still had energy, obviously. Um, so we then we went through a f some auditions, and a guy called Clive, who everybody knew as Cat, walked in and just went, right, are you good enough for me to join? Nice. And it was like, yeah, I like that. That's good. We were all get already getting a bit of a reputation on the local circuit, and then he fitted in straight away. Classically trained guitarist, um, and then we went from there. And we we got we had a couple of managers before we settled on a guy called Phil James, who used to be in a band called the Users back in 1976, Cambridge punk band. Um, and he had some connections up in London. He lived up in London, and, and we started going from there, signed record deals, and just it exploded quite quickly. Yes. Well, it was interesting because this was kind of towards the... Were you? This was around... Was it 86, 87 that things started to happen, or a bit before? Yeah, then? yeah. Around about then. I joined late 85, and then 86, we sort of solidified as a band, came up with the Sears stuff and started to get quite quite well known locally and then 87 it was it was time to to play some you well, it's a time for us to to release a record and i think we released our first single in 1987 yes. lightning strikes and and as as i found out later um our manager at the time um, just used to be very well connected with some recreational drug types and through that sort of way in um, got his hands on Jeff Travis. Nice. So um, that's from Rough Trade and Rough Trade 
put out our first single. Yeah, because it was quite an interesting time because then, because I, I sort of found that the indie pop scene had been really sort of between the years of 83 to 87, which was basically the years of the Smiths. But then when they split up, then, I don't know, a lot of those bands started to sort of give it up because they were they were on to the second album by then and things hadn't moved beyond, you know, just their sort of dedicated fan base. And also after five years in a band, most people are a bit sick of each other. And then Ecstasy comes along and then there's also that grunge scene from, from America. That's that happening. was the 90s by then. I, I, by the time grunge came along, I was easing my way out of out of the band anyway so but we'll get to that (laughs) yes so when you hit because with rough trade obviously they just you know they'd had the smiths experience and that had finished so i guess people were looking for another band and you'd had my bloody valentine and then in north london you had the faith healers and silverfish so but you were a bit more garage than they were a bit more kind of thrash really they they were but um chris bass player from silverfish used to be a big Big Sears fan used to come along to a lot of our gigs. Good, lovely bloke. Um, but we we did a, a, quite a bit with them. We did quite a bit with Loop. Yes. If you can remember Loop, who became the hair and skin trading company. Um, but Loop were... Yeah, and the Hypnotics, Jim Jones. We did a lot with them. Um, coming up through there. But we, we by this time, it was like we'd released... Um, Lightning Strikes, which is originally a B-side. We were going to release the A-side, which was Graveyard of Love, which was one of my songs. Um, but as as the lyrics to Lightning Strikes were sort of connected topically with the Hungerford Massacre, with mm. the, the, um, it was decided that that would be, that would be the, the single. So we recorded it really quickly um with with pat collier up in he'd he'd been working with the wonder stuff and and primarily we did a few gigs with quite a few gigs with the wonder stuff i'm still i'm still friends um with with miles and his brother russ who was in a band the original libertines Um, all right yes still sort of mates of them to today so that's that's good I'd have... um but suddenly with with that single i we recorded at the same time as um the wonder stuff we're doing give me more 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 that sort of time period it all kicked off in the press they got hold of the fact that it was something to do with the hungerford massacre and and it all kicked off from there, totally, everybody got the wrong end of the stick. It wasn't glorifying. It wasn't glorifying gun violence or anything or or anything of the sort. It was it was completely the opposite. It was it was saying that actually these things are starting to happen. There there should continue to be tighter gun control because we've proved since that. The old saying is guns don't kill people, people kill people. Yeah, but people without guns don't kill anybody. It's the people with guns that kill people. So people, yeah, guns kill people. And, and there needs to be that tight control 
over that. We need to know who's got a gun and who hasn't, and they've got the right license to use that and keep checks on them. We need that because we can see how how insane America is. Yeah. So it was it was picked up picked up on for the wrong reasons. We were we were all over the all over all the tabloids. We were recording demos for another single and, and possibly an album at that point in, in a place in Bristol. And we were, the, the guy who ran the place would come in and say, it's, uh, it's the Daily Telegraph on the phone. And go, all right. Uh, one of us would go out and talk to them and then they come back as a Daily Mirror on the phone. And it's, everybody else went out. And then somebody said, it's the f- son on the phone. And I just went, this is mine. <laughs> and I just went out and played up to it. So we were called vile and horrendous and evil. And questions were raised in the uh, House of Commons about us. Later on, I got a, uh, we there's somewhere on headed House of Commons note paper from the local um local MP um, uh, a little bit when everything died down a little bit sort of in later on in 1988 uh, uh, a letter of apology oh nice for, for because it when when all the manufactured Ferrari had died down a little bit and we got a chance to ourselves just to concentrate on the music which is all it was ever about it wasn't about being sensational or anything like that although our manager obviously didn't do anything to stop that. <laughs> um, but yeah, when it all died down and we actually got to send a, got to send our response to all this criticism and it was like, okay, we see where, what you actually mean. Really sorry for, for what we said. Oh, nice. Goodness. So that, that was nice to get that, but, I don't suppose it did us any harm, even though it's factually completely wrong. It's the old statement in it, talk good about me or talk bad about me, just as long as you talk about me. That sort of ethos in it. So it's all good. It's all good press in it, yeah, even if you're getting slagged off. Did it? Um, did the single sell that much? It, it sold a fair old bit. It made, at that time, you had to sell a fair old bit to get in the indie top 20. It's not like today, if you... If you fart and somebody downloads it, you're number five, aren't you? So, <laughs> yes, I know the the sales of the indie singles and albums are quite staggering now. I think, you know, like a hundred thousand, or you know, sort of, you know, I think the Smiths were selling quite phenomenal numbers, and they were. You had to sell a decent amount to to get in the indie top twenty, let alone the actual top twenty. And I think we spent a number of weeks in the top twenty with that with no gigs really to back it up we hadn't played anywhere um at that point really to to do anything so people didn't really know us apart from that single we hadn't played anywhere apart from apart from bristol we played one gig outside of bristol at that point um with my mates the rose hips up in a little club just outside stoke um and that was amazing because they're they're yeah. There's I I still have a really soft spot for the Rose Hips. I don't know if you heard much of their stuff. Yes. Room in my heart. Um, 
death to anti-vivisectionists everywhere, bloodstained fur. Um, but the, they, they were a great band, really good people. Um, but, but they got us a gig up there, played with them, and we'd not done anything. And then we'd signed to Solo Agency. Our manager managed to pull some strings and get us signed. And the, they'd say, oh, you got a tour. And it was like, brilliant. That's, that's what we need. We need to get around the country and play all these small venues and get people interested and get people known. Let's work hard and let's do that. Where are we? Where's the tour? And he just went, it's in Europe with the Ramones. Blimey. And that was our first tour. And I was, we hadn't toured anywhere. We played the gigs in Bristol and we played just outside Stoke-on-Trent. And we hadn't even played London by that point. And our first tour was supporting the Ramones around Northern Europe. And also as a, as a massive Ramones fan, um, I was, I was very happy. Yes, well, absolutely. <laughs> and did they have, um, was Danny Fields still part of the Ramones team or had he parted with No, them? no, he was nothing to do with that at that point. It was Gary Kerr first management in, in 1988. Danny, Danny Fields had left it in sort of the early eighties and he was stopped being a part of them. So it was their, their normal Kerr first management. Um, but they were just touring relentlessly. And this was, this was the last tour that Dee Dee Ramone did. Um, and the first tour after Richie Ramone left that Marky Ramone rejoined. So we had a pretty good lineup of the Ramones then, uh, um, Johnny, Joey, Dee Dee and Marky for the Ramones mania tour. And oh. we did, we did, we did that tour ending, ending with, ending with a date at, the Brixton Academy. Blimey, so pretty don't... much the first time we played London was Brixton Academy. So we were very lucky. Absolutely. I mean, did uh, did you sort of, because most bands at that period, you know, would do the art centres with a few hundred people and then possibly the university circuit, circuit with a few thousand. And then if they're lucky, get to the, to the next one, which is three. But to go straight into the, you know, such a, 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 a tour so quickly, did the band sort of, you know, I don't know, shape up instantly. Oh, we've, we've, we, yeah, we, we were, that was what we did well was play live. Um, so we then did those art centers and small venues and smaller everything, but it was, it was a nice way to, it was a nice way to get used to things. And we got used to big stages pretty quickly. So having, having to play, having to play, um, smaller venues we we then got a bit of a reputation as a support band which i possibly didn't do us much favors in the long term because the tour after that we toured we did a british tour um with crazy head supporting them again they they were they were great it was a, that sort of time we did a, a bit of a tour with wonder stuff we did our own tour with just like a 12-day tour of our own headlining um, and at that point I I'd seen Mega City 4 at um, Salisbury Arts Centre I went along with with the Rose Hips yeah. they had a day off from recording so he said oh, let's go and see Mega City 4 in, in Salisbury it's only an hour down the road let's, let's do that and I said, oh, I'm not driving, so yeah, let's do that. 
um, I got absolutely hammered and thought they were brilliant. So from that, I struck up a friendship with with Wiz, um, and then decided to to ask them if they wanted to to go out on tour. I said to my manager, "I've got a band that can come out on tour with us. Do you, would would we be able to do that?" And he just went, "Yeah, who, who are they?" Um, took him along to see them at the Bull and Gate, and he thought, "Yeah, they're great. Let's 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 do this." So we took Mega City Four out on because I wanted to, I wanted to have, have bands that I wanted to see out with us. Um, that went really well. And then just before Christmas, after all these things, we did another tour with Iggy Pop. So 1988, it, it was, yeah, <clears throat> didn't get much better than 1988. It's all been downhill since, but never mind. Yes. What was the al- <laughs> what was al- what was the album that Iggy was promoting? Was that- Instinct. Oh, I think I saw that. Was that with Steve Jones on guitar? He was there for the London date. Um, for most of the tour um, around Britain, it was Andy McCoy from Hanoi Rocks, but Steve Jones was definitely the London date. Hanoi Rocks, right? Yes, I just remember. Yeah, I do. He was. They came to the UEA, and I remember being very excited, being so close to Iggy during that point, yes. Yeah, that was, I got really nice memories of UEA. The two gigs that I played there were were Iggy Pop and The Wonder Stuff. Wow. That was the the two times we played. Yeah, great. That was the first time I had a proper proper chat with, um, with Rob the bass thing from the wonder stuff backstage. He was just like, you don't hang around with your own band, do you? It was like, no, nah, we're not mates. <laughs> yes. And he, he, he liked that. So got on all right with Rob. Nice. So 88, but then, you know, you hadn't even got your album out at this stage, had you? No, we, no, we basically, we then signed a deal with Virgin um, for something called Head Records, like like Jesus and Mary Chain did with Blanco y Negro, it was it was it was a bigger label's imprint, um, and Virgin's imprint for the indie bands was was Head Records, H E Double D, and it was run by Big Country's management. Right. So they gave us the money to finance um, our own record label to put a, like a, a to 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 give it a bit of coolness to have another indie release on our own label and we released us a, a, a three track seven inch and five track 12 inch ep called freedom trip um at the same time we filmed the video at reading festival and we became the first unsigned band to play the main stage at reading And that was in between going on tour with Crazy Head and the Ramones, which is is very nice too. But then that didn't work out on that label, did it? It didn't. They stiffed us big time. Um, They went into bank. They were, they the management went bankrupt and then they just, everything stopped um, and hampered, hampered us. So we weren't, we, we, we managed to put out another single actually on Virgin, 
um, we wanted the original two virgins label, but they actually gave us the red and red and white and blue virgin label that they used on on never mind the bollocks, which was which is good. Um, but then in that all went another British tour on the back of that. Um, and yeah, they they then effectively killed us from mm. that point. They refused to release the the tapes for the album so we could sign with somebody else, um, which led to us breaking into their offices and stealing back our own tapes. Oh, nice. Um, I know Johnny Marr did it, but then he got worried and went back and put them back again. But you actually stole them. No, we, we, yeah, we just went, we've got them now and it's nine-tenths of the law in it, possession. Yes, that's so the saying. they sort of gave up, but they'd effectively killed us by that point, by the time we got to breaking in and taking them back. Um, EMI were very interested, but when the legal nonsense came about they backed off and said look we'd love to sign you but you you need to actually be in a position where we can sign you and they weren't letting us go in the end we'd lost all that momentum and by 1990 um we signed to cherry red records who gave us a lifeline put out the the first album which was which finally to have it out was really nice um, but we'd lost all that momentum and we had taken two steps back. We we took, in 1989, on the back of really nothing, we did a tour to fill in the gaps, and after Ned's Atomic Dustbin had been out with Popoli itself and the Wonder Stuff, Tank, their manager, was also our, our merchandise guy. He wanted to work with us after we played with the Wonder Stuff because he was their merchandise chap too. Um, he was managing a band, Ned's Atomic Dustman, and we took them out on tour. And by that point, we'd lost all momentum. They'd ha- they had a lot of momentum, and they basically stormed it. Yes. Most nights over us supporting us, we'd, we'd lost momentum by that time. They were really good guys to go out on tour with. I'm really happy that they went on and, and did what they did. Um, fr- from a band perspective, it probably wasn't the best tour, but from a, having a laugh with Ned's Atomic Dustbin perspective, it was a hoot. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, because there was... I, I, we'd, yeah, go on. I was going to say, because there was quite a lot of momentum at that point, wasn't there? Of, I mean, there'd been, you know, there'd been Bleach, and then Nevermind was coming out. And so people were really into that you know, guitar-based rock, you know, with a lot of thrash. I think you're two years, you're two years out, aren't you, but really, but before anything really took up, we were like, like the old um, Fifth Dimension band, uh, we're five years ahead of our time. Right, yes. Really, well, from that side of things, because we were a precursor for a lot of that sort of garagey, grungy sort of stuff. Um but Bleach didn't sell. Bleach wasn't selling. No, that didn't at sell at all. At that point, it was only with it was only retrospectively after Nevermind sold millions that they were on the they were on, like us. They had no momentum, and it was only because they hit that rich vein of songs. We went the other way. By the time we came to our second album, we'd spent most of that time 
out on the road playing that we we'd had no time to really write a proper second album. So Cherry Red wanted us to do lots of touring. We we toured Japan, we toured Germany. By this time, our other manager got banged up, so we had to get another manager, and we had a which guy one, called which... George. Which was the the guy? Because you started with who was the first guy that you had? Not Dave Darling. You oh Phil James. No. Phil, yeah, he 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 ended up doing a bit of time. Oh dear, what was his what was his moment? What was his yeah. kind of tricky? I, 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 yeah, I, I, I don't I don't think Phil would would no. thank me if I told no, anybody. No, that's fair no. enough. So um, yes, it's it's always curious. They they are there. Sometimes it's yeah, kind of, yeah. Sometimes suffice it, to say, he was no longer our manager, and we had to get a, a guy who managed a German band called Philip Bowen, the Voodoo Club. God, I'd never come across that. There was another one that I can remember, a German band who was in the 90s who were huge, but I can't... And he had something to do with them, D. Totenhosen. That's the one! <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, so, yeah, we we had him for a while, and then, yeah... Things started tailing off at that point. So with, I started... when you put out Psyched Out, Psych Out, did it, was that the material that you'd recorded for Virgin that, that came yeah, out? Yeah, that was that. Was that. Uh, that should have come out in the summer of 89. Um, but it came out late 90. Um, so we'd lost all that momentum by that time. We were playing gigs for... We were holding numbers but we weren't selling anywhere out because we 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 didn't have any momentum or anything out to go with it and it was yeah. so it quickly petered out we'd already go there's we're, we're already talking about us having peaked and <laughs> and and started going down i'd started doing more sound engineering and like uh, monitor engineering and working with mega city 4 hanging out with them because they became really good friends still to this day but i i was enjoying working with them more than being in a band at that point so so when you went in to record the second album yeah peace crazy were you was was it already sort of pretty much known that that would be the the kind of the end of the band no not not at all we were we were at that point we were ready to crack on and and do what we wanted to do and it was we were working on stuff in the studio we we'd started to get a coherent strand it was a little bit more indie based than the first album which was which was our live set at the time and we practiced and rehearsed that to death and it was a very garagey feel to that um but we'd we'd started to get a bit more of a coherent indie presence rather than it being you being sort of garagey based. Um, you've got to think about that time. Also things had changed with baggy and that sort of stone roses and soup dragons and the farm and things like that were, were, were sort of making the charts. So that sort of had a bit of an effect. And to be honest, we were all stoned out of our minds the whole time. So it wasn't as if we took anything else in. Yeah. 
so that that had an effect on what we did um and we went into a studio with it with Kosan studio just outside Bath, right down by the river. Uh, a few lovely stoned episodes in um, in boats down on the river, and a lovely a lovely um, dinner with Hugh Cornwall from the Stranglers, who's who actually turned out to be a really really nice bloke. Um, and we had we had a yeah we had we had a a slightly frustrating time recording that and then it was given to mix to a guy called Nick Tauber he and he was just sort of overseeing everything I didn't like working with Nick at all Nick had done Thin Lizzy and Toya and is quite a well respected wasn't for us yes um, I, I would have rather we did some stuff with a guy called Vic Mail. Oh my God, he'd who, been with Motorhead. Yeah, he did Ace of Spades, and and from my perspective, um, another band that I I really liked at the time was the Godfathers, and he did a lot of stuff with with them. So it was like, yeah, I would have rather have done stuff with Vic Mail. Yeah. Um. For whatever reason, we recorded five tracks, and they're out there somewhere, and I don't know where they are. Um. But that was ostensibly to start recording for the second album, and that didn't come to anything. I think Vic was busy, which didn't help. But we ended up with Nick Tauber, who I didn't like. Um, and then he took it away to New York to mix, and we had no input on the mixing whatsoever. And I absolutely hated the results. Still can't listen to that LP to this day. Yes. And what, like. were the were the band in agreement, or were some saying no, this is good? You'd have to ask them. I, I I think I was a little wrapped up in myself at the time, and and what I thought rather than we didn't really get on by that point anyway. We'd never really got on. We weren't mates to start with. It was just we were in a band together. It wasn't. A, I, I can take Mega City Four as a really good example of mates who grew up together that were in a band we i knew none of them before i was in that band and i haven't remained in contact with any of them since really so yes. it, it was a, it was a different different scenario we weren't there because we were great mates or anything like that it was it was simply because we liked to make music and we we seemed to work well together and when that stopped working so well together that's when we stopped but at that point we were still we were still wanting to to do something we'd had that lp in the bag in 1990 and we we'd done we'd done the tour of japan and that was really good they worked you really bloody hard but it was it was all good we were setting up with another tour i just finished um doing more stuff with Mega City 4 in between our tours. By this point, our guitarist, Lee, had decided that he was going to quit. And Lee was really the heart of the band for me. He was mm. my best. If I was going to have a best mate in that band, it would have been Lee. We'd spent a lot of time. We were the, the main songwriters in the band. So he would be always the one that I'd, I'd take off to one side, Bring your bring your guitar, would you, mate? I got I got a riff. 
um, or got an idea and we'd work on things like that and they'd come together really quickly. Um, but he left. We got a mate of the bass player, Jason, um, called Nick, who came in and was was a nice guy, um, good play. And then he immediately sliced his hand open with a falling through a, a showered glass shower divide. So that put us back another six to eight months with a with a new lineup. And it was like we we we've it's killed every last bit of momentum we ever had. It was it was ridiculous. Um, and at that point, I I I can remember sitting at Nirvana, the Bristol Beer Keller, at the side of the stage, um, assisting with monitors for the night. And Cat, our other guitarist, was sat next to me, and I just said, "This is what we got. To, this is what we're up against." And we haven't got any of that momentum, have we? And I said, we, we've, got, um, we've got a couple of dates and we've got a hometown gig for Christmas. You, should we just call it quits? Then he looked at me and he just went, yeah, I think you're probably right, mate. <laughs> so so we, we, played, we played the Anson Rooms with Mega City 4 um, on Friday the 13th of December. 1991 the second album wasn't out yet but we we announced it was going to be our last gig um and it, that's on video somewhere there's lots of footage out on of that gig out on um youtube but there yeah we we decided to knock it on there at that point yeah. Um, and I went off on tour with Mega City 4 to Germany the very next day. So I didn't even think about it and then sort of woke up end of January the following year. And it was like, yeah, that's all done then, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and and I, yeah, I moved on to do other things. I went in another band again for years. I, I became full-time monitor engineer and tour manager for Mega City 4 for a couple of years and, and then just DJ'd myself um, at a club in Bristol before doing... I never took it seriously again. I, I just did did bands with, with mates. Yeah. I, 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 didn't, I wasn't going to take it seriously again. I was going to do music with people I enjoyed making music with. Um, and we did. I did that for a good number of years. And just that's even that petered out, released a couple of albums under the name Zoomer, um, Hello Lover and Monkey Lands Plane. <laughs> um, we had a bit of a, a little bit of a Sears renaissance with a Bristol Archive Records releasing a couple of our live stuff on album. Um, and then we we finally got to do something together properly as a last gig after Wiz from Meg City 4 unfortunately passed away. Um, I ended up helping the band out at the 4 for Wiz tribute night um, with Paul Thompson from Midway still taking the guitar parts and I did Wiz's vocal parts for a, 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 quite a bit of that set. Um, 
and I decided that we'd I'd try and get the Sears back together because the the rest of the Mega City Four said, "Why don't the Sears get back together?" So we did that in another Christmas gig with Mega City Four, um, and we reformed the Sears for a night with our original lineup. Nice to have Lee back. We did um, we did an hour and a half practice. Um, <laughs> one practice in 18 years and we nailed the gig and that sort of bookended things nicely because Lee was back it was the original lineup some people for, were the worst for wear and hadn't handled the, the hadn't handled the years in between very well but um, we put on a decent show and that sort of that yeah, that was it. That felt right. Yes. And did it, I mean, when a band finishes, because obviously there must be equipment and certain admin legality, how does it, you know, there must be someone just tie these things up. I'm just curious. Yeah, it wasn't me. That's what I can say. I was a singer. I had nothing. So I just walked away, literally. I decided I'm, I don't need, I'm not having anything to do with that. I think other people got the album out. They took that forward. I think Jason, the bass player, was instrumental in doing all that. So the second album came out after we split up. We got so we got Japan asking us to reform to go out there again, and we just went, nah, I'm not interested. And that was it. We never, apart from coming together for a friend who passed away, there, there was no, there was no reason for us to get back together again. It no. just didn't really, it didn't really come up. Um, a couple of people have got in touch with a couple of, of everybody to say, would you like to play some gigs? And the answer has always been unanimously. No, we have absolutely no interest. A wise choice, really. Yes, I could imagine. It is. We both, we've all moved on. I, 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 I'm. Yeah, I've I've got a career. I I've went into care. I'm a nurse, so I've I've done something different with my life. I've stayed in contact with people I like. I've not stayed in contact with people I'm not that fussed about. Life's too short to hold grudges. I'd rather fill my life with people who are going to be positive that I like being around so yeah my life's taken a very different turn I'm very happy with how things have worked out because I'd, I'd have made an awful celebrity <laughs> if it, it, I, I would have been absolutely unbearable and I think anybody who knows me would have just been yeah you, you, you're unbearable enough as it is but yeah I would have made an awful celebrity of any description, so it's probably best I wasn't. Like, yes, and did you ever worked out during that next period? You know, because like you said, a lot of music is about timing. I remember doing an interview with Richard Strange from the Doctors of Madness, and he said he was mm. they were two years too early for punk, but everyone in the audience went on to form punk bands basically. So he, yeah, yeah, and so he, you know, just like, oh well, never mind. <laughs> we're sort of because again, it's that thing about momentum. So we're in the sort of the 90s period when suddenly you know, Top of the Ports was full of these kind of bands. 
with guitars and you know the wonder stuff were sort of bigging it up did you ever have that little bit of regret that you you hadn't been able to navigate another couple of years out of um no because it felt natural that we stopped when we stopped i think i think since then i might have had a couple of times where what, what would have happened if we'd have carried on because it's sort of it, you can look at you can look back on things with a little bit of rose tinted glasses and and but back in the day when you were there you made that decision for a reason and it was not sustainable so you yeah also is you you can't have regrets in it because there's no way you can go back and change any of it so it's it's a waste of time it's a pointless exercise going back with regrets mm because you can't do anything about it. it. It was what you, what it was. It felt right to do at the time. And we, if we would that had that many regrets, we would have possibly made an ill fated attempt at, um, uh, reforming like a lot of bands do. We reformed for a one-off for a very specific reason. And that was it. That was a nice way to finish it. It sort of, that bit of it because Lee had left by that time it was it was nice to do the last gig properly with Lee back in the fold since since I since I split up well since we split up in 1991 Nick the other guitarist I've, I've not I've not seen him or spoken a word to him since but I was in a band with him for a year I don't know the guy and I've not spoken to I've bumped into Cat on the street um, last year said we were good yeah let's meet up and let's do this and you never do though do you no <laughs> I, I've met I, yeah I meet up with with other mates <laughs> so that I'll travel up to Edinburgh to see mates I'll go, go up to to London to see mates, but I can't be asked to go down the road to see a band a guy I was in a band with. Yeah, but, but without doing them down, because they're all good, they're all good people in their own ways. That we were never mates, so it, it just didn't feel it didn't feel right to to do anything. I've got I've got mates. Yeah, and well, and also, I mean, it's that thing that the people you might have worked with thirty years ago, you know, and you might have had a nice time at times or, or not. But you know, you don't you don't often want to see them thirty years later. If you bump into someone in the supermarket, that's one thing, but you don't really want to go beyond the idea of having a coffee because you think, well, we did work together, but that that's kind of what we did for that period of time. Yeah, yeah. It was I I've I've chosen to keep in touch with the people I want to keep in touch with. So a lot of the Mega City Four a lot. A lot of Ned's Atomic Dustbin lot and mates with with a load of people who used to go and see those sort of bands because part of my job as tour manager with make city four instilled in us by whiz and still to this day if i did a band don't do anything like that is look after the people that come to see you yeah it's very very much that ethos is is they they've taken the time to come to see you 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 do your best to look after people and that's that's what i did when i was tour manager that it was like do you need do you need a lift somewhere do you need somewhere to stay do you need food do you need this do you need do you need uh, let's get you in on the guest list it's it's do those things to look after people 
especially around that time, you'd, you'd have a lot of people hitching to gigs and it was like, right, you're not hitching to this gig. That's dangerous. Get in the van. Yeah. Let's let let's take you there. Let's make sure that you're safe and, and things like that. It's a good it's a good ethos to have to look after people and to, to, to care about people that come to see you. I think a lot of bands get wrapped up in themselves and forget that they, these are the people that put you there you need to look after them and um yes absolutely it's it's a good a, a good thing to do especially well whenever but then the other thing about the band i mean just kind of on a slightly superficial level there are some fantastic photographs of the band both on stage and and sort of crowd shots as well which must be you know for, yeah um, we we were we were we were quite a we we were quite an energetic live band so that made there's very few pictures of me not in midair, for instance. So yeah, we were quite photogenic live. We put on a good show. That was the that was the basis of why we got where we got quite quickly is because we were bloody good live. Yes, absolutely. And did your legs um, cope? You know, years later, because there are a lot of pictures of you sort of flying in in. Sort yeah, of... yeah, yeah. I, I, I. I don't think I, I'm doing too bad. I'm in my mid-50s now. So um, there's the here in the shot. I died recently um, as part of just getting my glasses sorted out. I just went to Specsavers. Having been to audiology over the years and refusing hearing aids, I've gone and I got to pick up hearing aids next week, sign of my hearing shot. But um, they... they so when did you first notice that you had um, problems with your hearing? I said, oh, um, 1988. And they were like, oh, <laughs> oh, really? And I said, yeah, I've been in a band for years. And they just, they just said, well, what, what, what hearing aids are you looking at then? And I just said, right, stop you there. I make this very clear. I'm not looking at hearing aids. I don't want them. But actually, I need them. So this is that. Let's let's put that on record. I don't want them, but I need them. So <laughs> I got to pick up really tiny ones as well, so you can hardly see them. So I'm happy that nobody <laughs> nobody's going to know I'm not with my Morrissey NHS hearing aid in. <laughs> They've moved on a long time. I did see a film at the weekend called Sound of Metal, which was about a drummer who loses his hearing. Which yeah, as a lot of people have said good things about that. I need to to see that because I'm still sort of keeping my hand in writing songs with with mates up in Edinburgh and I need to really pull my finger out on that one just 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 for a just because it's a nice thing to go up and if you, we do ever record I get to go and have a long weekend in Edinburgh so it's it's not a bad thing so, but it's more of a social thing than anything else so just doing it to keep me hand in Yes, absolutely. This is fantastic. So, kind of last question then. If you could have said something to your, say, like 18-year-old self starting out or 16-year-old self starting out, you know, with the, the wisdom and experiences you've, you've kind of got over the decades, what, what, if, is there anything you would have just wanted to say to that person, you know, just before they went out on stage or, I don't know, in the studio? No, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't. Things happen for a reason. I'm very sort of I don't believe in much but something I do believe in is karma um, and what 
what goes around comes around. So I I think I looked after enough people down there to make sure that I'm okay now. I wouldn't have changed a thing if I'm being honest. I wouldn't have had if I was trying to tweak things and don't do that and do this. I I wouldn't have had the edge that I had back then. And I I would I was happy to burn brighter for half as long. Yes. And, um, you know, playing with people like the Ramones, Iggy Pop, and, and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. We well, did, Dave, there. I can remember sitting down on the front of the stage of Manchester International with Hillel, Hillel Slovak, the, the, the guitarist who died, and we split a bottle of whiskey at the front of the stage, had a good natter about um, punk rock and skateboarding. Yeah, they, they were... It, yes. it, it was It was, yeah... I, I've I've had good experiences with touring with bands. There was always "Don't Meet Your Heroes," wasn't it? I'm not saying that Chili Peppers are heroes, but they were nice guys to us. Yes. Um, and the Ramones were were just creatures from another planet. It was I I loved meeting the Ramones. It was brilliant. Iggy Pop, on the other hand, was an ass hat. Oh, good. What? But never mind. <laughs> was he just full of himself? Oh, yeah, he'd obviously had many, many years of people telling him how brilliant he was and laughing at every single joke that he was just, I don't want him backstage, he's too tall. Because he's a dwarf, basically, an old, leathery, wrinkled dwarf. (laughs) And I just went, fine, I don't actually need to be backstage because i got mates out there I could be having a beer with. So, yeah, no no problem, Jim. (laughs) Oh dear, God, too high, too high. Yeah, <laughs> and it was good. I got the throw up on him at the end of tour party, so that was good. Nice, that's rock and roll. That's cool. Mm. Well, look, thank you ever so much for this. This has been brilliant. I'm so pleased to have, um, yeah, that we managed to line this up. The joys of calendars. So um, Indeed. Yeah. But, um, yeah, and thank you again. And um, when I put it out, I can always send you a link, and, and you can always... Um, Yes, put it on your... I don't know if you've got a Facebook page. You have, haven't you? I have, yes. yes. I have, yes. I think that's probably how I got in touch with you. Um, but yeah, yeah. The, from, from, I think, through Mega City 4, I think. Yeah, I know. That, that page, yeah, yeah. But yeah, and I managed not to swear as well. That's a big thing for me. Well done, me. <laughs> <laughs> this happens. Yeah, well, look, thank you again, and uh, take care. And I'll, and no I'll... problem. Been a pleasure, Dave. Thank take you care. very much for having me. Yeah, no problem, and um, have a great year. Okay, see ya. I will do. Take care, Dave. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that, dear listener, is how you finish a conversation really concisely, precisely. I know. I love leaving that in because it always sounds so fumbly. Anyway, look, that was me in conversation with the vocalist from the Sears. That was Steve Croom, who you probably gathered if you're still listening. Well done. Um, Anyway, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. Make it nice. Otherwise, don't bother. And um, yes, I've been doing these interviews for years. And um, if you enjoyed that one, well done you. Well done you. Um, Yeah, you can catch lots of 80s bands. Just go to um, either Spotify, iTunes or Podbean and do C86 show, and um, yeah, you will be a bit surprised. There are literally hundreds. I didn't realise there were so many in the 80s. Anyway, enough of that. Have a great week. Stay safe. Bye.